If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 7. John 7, we're going to be in verses 1 to 24 this morning in God's Word, John chapter 7. 1 to 24. And let's give our attention now to God's Word. If you would follow along with me as we read, this is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. For the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh God, we do seek illumination from you and from your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that our eyes would be opened, that our ears would be unstopped, that our hearts would be soft, that our minds would be receptive, and that we would receive the word, God, which when implanted in our souls is able to save us. Father, we pray that there would be no that there would be no dull ears this morning. We pray for an openness to the word of God. Please, please keep me from error, Father. These are your people. They belong to your son. They need to hear your word. I pray, Father, that you would care for them by your Holy Spirit and grant them insight into the truth. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of John, there are few concepts more important than belief in Jesus Christ. In chapter 20, for example, John tells us that the reason he writes this book is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life in His name. Belief is the purpose of John's Gospel. In John chapter 6, the crowd asks Jesus what they must do to be doing the works of God. Jesus answers them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Belief is the purpose of the book because belief is the work that God calls us to do. Belief is also the God-established means of life. John 3.16, arguably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In the Gospel according to John, there are few concepts more important than belief in Jesus Christ. But this emphasis on belief is part of what makes John chapter 7 such a challenge. Today's passage is the converse, the flip side, the antithesis of John's emphasis on belief. Whereas John writes to encourage belief in Jesus Christ, these verses describe persistent unbelief. Everybody in the passage doesn't believe. The Jews in Jerusalem don't believe. The religious leaders don't believe. Even Jesus' own brothers don't believe. That's a challenge. John's gospel from start to finish emphasizes belief, and yet here in chapter 7, there is this persistent, dangerous, deadly unbelief. Why then does John include this material? That's the question that you ought to ask when you read this chapter. If belief in Jesus is so central, why does John spend so many verses describing unbelief? Well, there are a couple of reasons why. The first is evangelistic. In describing unbelief, both what it is and how it comes to be, John appeals to unbelievers. He appeals to non-Christians. By God's grace, these verses may be the means that the Spirit uses to open someone's eyes to the truth. These verses have an evangelistic purpose. Perhaps the Spirit will open blind eyes, even this morning. The second reason John includes this material is for exhortation. This passage exhorts Christians to continue in the faith. We saw at the end of John 6 that there were some disciples who turned away from Jesus. They did not persevere in the faith. Peter, by contrast, did persevere. He believed and continued to believe. In a way then, John chapter 7 carries on the exhortation from Peter's example. In these verses, it's as though John is saying to us, this is what unbelief looks like. This is how unbelief manifests itself, so watch out. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Persevere. It's an exhortation. And that's the connection with us this morning. This passage helps us diagnose the condition of our own hearts. 
What is the state of our perseverance in the faith? Are there any seeds of unbelief taking root in our hearts? And if so, how can we dig them out so that they don't bear the awful fruit of walking away from Jesus? So we understand that belief, genuine faith, is a vital necessity in the Christian life. And as a word of caution, John 7 teaches us to recognize the enemies to that kind of faith. That's how we're going to approach the passage this morning. You may have never heard a sermon in where all the points were about the enemies of genuine faith. But that's what we're going to do today. This passage gives us three enemies of genuine faith. Three things that work against belief in Christ. What are the specific conditions of the human heart that work against perseverance? There's three in particular. And along the way... Along the way, friends, I hope that the effect of thinking about these things will be that we're all strengthened to continue in the faith until the very end. So that's where we're headed. Three enemies of genuine faith. That's where we're going to go. Let's start in verses 1 to 9 with the first enemy. Genuine faith is threatened by the craving for worldly glory. Enemy number one, the craving for worldly glory. John sets the scene in verses 1 and 2, and it's not encouraging. Because of hostility in Jerusalem, Jesus is largely focused on Galilee at this point. Verse 1 is stark. The Jews in Jerusalem are trying to kill Jesus. And this lethal desire, John tells us in verse 2, is present during one of the annual Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. This particular feast occurred around harvest time and it commemorated God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt when they lived in tents in the wilderness. And so once a year, all the Israelites would build these booths and they would live in them for seven days to remember God's deliverance. So this should have been a time, this should have been a time for Jesus to go up and celebrate in Jerusalem and to worship his father. But instead, it's a time of increasing hostility. The Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him. And unexpectedly, that hostility shows up in Jesus' own family. Jesus' brothers urge him to go to Jerusalem. Look again at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. The brothers' plan is straightforward. Since it is a feast, the crowds are ripe for Jesus to make an impression. Perhaps, perhaps the brothers know, perhaps they know about those disciples that abandoned Jesus at the end of John 6, and they are legitimately concerned about Jesus retaining his followers, or perhaps Jesus' brothers have their own doubts, and their plan is meant to test Jesus to see if he will perform some sign to confirm who he is. Whatever their motive, whatever the motive of Jesus' brothers, their preference is clear. They want Jesus to make a public display of his power. A public display of power. The brothers then provide support for their plan. Notice the argument they make, verse 4. For, the brothers say, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
Galilee's too small, the brothers argue. If you want to be known, Jesus, then you have to stop hanging out in the shadows and you've got to take center stage and there's no place better to do that than Jerusalem. That's the capital city. That's the religious epicenter. That's the royal citadel. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. It's the perfect time. The crowds are ripe. He needs to go to Jerusalem and he needs to prove himself to the world. But right from the start, there's a problem in the brother's plan. Notice how they urge Jesus to make himself known to the world. Do you see that in verse 4? The Apostle John is a master of profound simplicity, and he often takes everyday words and he infuses them with a depth of meaning that catches you off guard. The world is one such example of how John does that. In John's Gospel, what characterizes the world? Unbelief, darkness, opposition to God. John 1.10 is a good example He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world lies in darkness. The world is characterized by unbelief. So what is driving driving the brother's plan for Jesus? Not the plan of God the Father, but the thinking of the world. That's what drives them. They want Jesus to prove himself in a way that eliminates the need for faith. Do a great sign, they urge him. Do a great sign. But that's not the Father's way of exalting the Son. That's the world's way of thinking, not God's. Jesus' brothers are thinking like the worldly people that they are. And verse 5 confirms this. Verse 5 is one of the more shocking verses in the whole chapter. Listen again. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now that's that's stark. Jesus' brothers are not doing the work of God. At this point, they do not believe in the one whom God has sent. Why don't they believe? Because they think like the world thinks. They crave worldly glory they can see, all the while missing the truth that they must believe. Jesus, for his part, addresses the problem directly. Beginning in verse 6, Jesus confirms that he thinks in a completely different way. Jesus operates with a different plan. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus' brothers can go to the feast anytime they want. One day is as good as the next. Go whenever you want. But Jesus does not have that same kind of open-endedness. Remember the setting from verses 1 and 2. What's going on in Jerusalem? It's a feast day, the Feast of Tabernacles. So religious fervor in the city is at a high. And the Jews are trying to kill Jesus. Add those things together, and it's a volatile situation in the capital. If Jesus rolls into Jerusalem with a climactic display of power, he's likely to either start a riot or risk being crowned king. And neither one of those options fits with the plan of God for Jesus. Where will Jesus receive his crown? 
not on the streets of Jerusalem in a parade, but outside of Jerusalem on the cross. Where will Jesus receive his glory? Not through a worldly display of power, but through a display of weakness that the world despises. Jesus' life follows the Father's plan, not the world's. The brothers can go anytime they want. Jesus must submit to his Father. Jesus then goes on to make a sharper point. He has a different plan from his brothers, but he also has a different allegiance. Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So we find John's important term again, the world. And Jesus' point is that his brothers belong to the world, at least right now. They belong to the world. That's why the world cannot hate them, because they are of the world. They share the world's perspective, the world's desire for glory, and even the world's unbelief. Jesus, on the other hand, stands against the world. He shines light into the world's darkness. He speaks truth into the world's lies. He exposes the world's evil. And for that reason, Jesus cannot follow his brother's plan. Jesus has a different allegiance. He doesn't belong to the world. They do. Verses 8 and 9 then give Jesus' conclusion. They can go to Jerusalem without him. He will not go to Jerusalem in the way that his brothers want him to go. Of course, Jesus ends up going to Jerusalem in just a few verses, as we're going to see in verse 10. But even then, Jesus goes privately, not with a public display. And Jesus doesn't do any signs when he goes to Jerusalem. He teaches. So Jesus doesn't mislead his brothers when he tells them he's not going. He's telling them the truth. He is not going to go to Jerusalem the way they want him to go with a display of worldly power. He's going to go his own way following a different plan with a different allegiance. Friends, what should get your attention here with Jesus' brothers What should get your attention is how a desire for worldly power, a desire for worldly power blinds Jesus' brothers to the truth. They do not believe in Jesus, verse 5. Why not? Because they see with the world's eyes. That's why. Jesus hasn't done enough visibly powerful things. He hasn't displayed enough glorious confirmation. If Jesus would just give them glory and power and prestige on the world's terms, then they would believe in Him. Do more signs, Jesus, then we'll believe you. And that's precisely the problem. That's precisely the problem. God's truth cannot be judged on worldly criteria. God's truth cannot be confirmed in worldly ways. Jesus' brothers don't believe because they crave glory they can see rather than truth they have to submit to. They want power and glory and influence. And those are not the ways of God's kingdom. And so the application to us at this point is incredibly important. This is especially true This is especially true in our day and age when so many churches and so many ministries get caught up in the pursuit of power and platform. 
Jesus' brothers are a warning to the church in 2022. It's a warning. We ought to be on guard. I want you to hear me. We ought to be on guard, brothers and sisters, against the creeping desire for things like prestige, acclamation, influence, prominence, and power. Those things are what the world values, but they are not the values of God's kingdom. Indeed, prestige, acclamation, influence, prominence, power, all of those things may very well be the enemies of faith that perseveres to the end. And so, we ought to be on guard against seeking influence and platform, thinking that such things will confirm the truth to the world. No, friends. What confirms the truth to the world is what we see from Jesus. Humility. Submission to God. Faithfulness to the Father. That's what confirms the truth to the world. It's the humility of entrusting ourselves to God's plan, even when God's plan requires weakness and faith that the world can't understand. We ought to be on guard against the creeping desire for the things the world values because those are not the things of God's kingdom and they may very well be the enemies of true faith. That's warning number one. From Jesus' brothers, we move now to the crowds in Jerusalem. And there's a second enemy of genuine faith. In verses 10 to 15, genuine faith is threatened by a dullness toward God's word. Dullness towards God's word. We've already explained Jesus' decision to ultimately go to Jerusalem. He's not misleading his brothers. Jesus goes in private, verse 10 says. He doesn't go publicly, and he's not chasing glory. And what Jesus finds in Jerusalem is what we would expect. He finds hostility, verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? That's not a friendly where is he. That's a sinister where is he. Where is he so we can kill him? It's hostile. There's also confusion. Verse 12, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading people astray. Opinion is divided over Jesus and not in truthful ways. Jesus is certainly not leading anyone astray. But he's so much more than a good man. There's confusion. Finally, there's fear. Verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So you can understand Jesus' desire to avoid a confrontation. Things are volatile in Jerusalem. Hostility, confusion, and fear mark the city. But even in that volatility, Jesus pursues his mission. In verse 14, Jesus takes his place in the temple, the center of Jerusalem's religious life. Look again, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Friends, what should get your attention here is the centrality of Jesus' word, his teaching. In fact, Jesus' word is what brings light to the people's confusion. 
follow that progression from verse 11 to verse 14. The Jews are hostile, verse 11. The crowd is confused, verse 12. Pretty much everyone is afraid, verse 13. What brings light to that situation? Jesus' word, verse 14. His word. In the middle of the feast, at the center of Israel's religious life, what does Jesus put on display? Not a miracle, but his authoritative, life-giving word. He teaches He teaches in the temple. He gives them his word. This is an essential point in John's gospel. It's true that Jesus' signs at times reveal his identity as the Messiah. His miracles are certainly significant. But it is Jesus' word that calls for your faith. It is Jesus' teaching that calls you to account. It's his word that's on center Stage. It's just like Jesus said at the end of chapter 6. His words are spirit and life. It's why Peter confessed also at the end of chapter 6. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what makes verse 14 so significant in this chapter. When Jesus stands up in the temple on center stage. When he's there at the focal point of Israel's religious life. What does he put on display? Not a miracle. His word. His teaching. Sadly though, the crowds fail to see the centrality of Jesus' teaching. Like Jesus' brothers, the crowds evaluate Jesus entirely on worldly terms. Notice their response in verse 15. Jesus' teaching, verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied Verse 15 works on two levels. On the one hand, the crowd is right to marvel at Jesus' teaching. There is something different about Jesus compared to the scribes and the Pharisees, so they're right to marvel. But on the other hand, notice why they are marveling. Why do they marvel? Not because they hear in Jesus' words the power of God. No, they marvel because Jesus doesn't fit their worldly expectations. He hasn't been trained like the other rabbis. He didn't go to the best Bible schools. How in the world does this guy teach this way? So to say it differently, Jesus doesn't fit their idea of an authoritative teacher. They're judging him based on the world's criteria. And that's the key to verse 15. The crowd's marveling is a sign of their unbelief. The Jews are so caught up in worldly standards that they miss the otherworldly nature of Jesus' word. They're too busy trying to fit Jesus into their own understanding that they just fail to hear his teaching. And for this reason, the Jewish crowd does not believe. I want you to see that connection. Because they have been steeped in the world's standards, their ears are dull to the word of God. Because they're thinking in worldly categories, their ears are dull to Jesus' teaching. Friends, the question here that we should ask is pointed. Are your ears dull to God's word when you encounter it? Are my ears dull to the word of God as Jesus reveals it? 
When you hear scripture, are you more likely to try to fit what God says into your understanding? Or are you willing to let go of your own understanding and submit to the truth of God's word as it comes to you? Listen, dull ears, dull ears demand that God's word submit to our expectations. Dull ears judge God's word by standards we set up for ourselves. Open ears, however, listen with humility. And they follow with faith. The Jews in Jesus' day were dull to the word of God. Are you? If so, the solution, the solution to having dull ears is both simple and costly. Lay down your insistence that God's word makes sense to you on your terms. Lay that down. Give up, give up your demand that God's word fit your criteria, a criteria that's rooted in the world's way of thinking. Submit yourself to the authority of God by faith in his word. Now you might be thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound like anything. You didn't tell me to do anything just then. That sounds like you're just telling me to think about and approach the Bible with a different mindset. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's precisely what I'm saying. But that simple mindset of humility, friends, that simple mindset is costly. It's costly. It's, it's losing your life in order to find your life in Christ. It's taking up the cross where you die to this idea, this absolute, 100% untrue, mythical creation that you are your own authority. You die to that idea. And you submit yourself to the authority of God's word. And in that moment where you come under the authority of God's word by faith, you find that that's where freedom was found all along. Not in this false idea of getting to make your own rules, but in the life-giving, freedom-producing submission to the authority of God and saying, He's the Lord and you're not. That's the solution to dull ears, friends. It's both simple and costly. Lay down your insistence that you get to be God. Take up the cross of freedom that is submitting to God in His Word through faith in Jesus Christ. Dull ears lead to unbelief, and unbelief leads to death. But open ears are humble and quick to submit to the Word of God. Which one characterizes you? That's enemy number two. The third enemy of genuine faith continues in the same line of thinking. From verses 16 to 24, genuine faith is threatened by a commitment to self-exaltation. A commitment to self-exaltation. The crowd in verse 15 essentially questions Jesus' credentials to teach. Jesus has never studied in the rabbi schools, so what right does he have to teach like this? Jesus, in verse 16, points to credentials that far exceed those of any earthly teacher. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Teachers in Jesus' day would often cite other rabbis as support and as a way of proving how much they had studied. 
Jesus doesn't need any outside citation. Jesus comes from God, and that's what gives his word authority. Jesus reveals what the Father speaks. Jesus needs no earthly confirmation. There are no footnotes to any of Jesus' sermons. He comes with heavenly authority. Jesus then moves to explain how you receive his teaching. In order to understand God's truth, you must seek it on God's terms. Notice verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, verse 17 is tough to interpret. Perhaps the clearest way to think about it is the contrast, is the contrast between God's will and your own will. If a person seeks his own will, pursues his own agenda, then that person will not be able to discern God's truth in Jesus. Seeking your own agenda blinds you to the truth of God. But, Jesus says, the person who seeks God's will is able to discern the truth of God in Jesus. To seek God's will is to submit to God in faith. Remember John chapter 6 where Jesus said that the work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. That's a similar emphasis here in verse 17. If anyone by faith seeks to do God's will, then through that act of humble submission, that person will see the truth of God in Jesus' teaching. That's a long way of saying when we submit to God in faith, we come to see that God's truth has been present in Jesus all along. God's will is that we believe in Jesus Christ. But we have to let go of our own will in order to see that truth. Then in verse 18, Jesus applies this principle to himself as a way of affirming his truthfulness. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Now this is a, this is a powerful connection from Jesus. He just said in verse 17 that to know the truth you must seek it on God's will not your own. Now in verse 18, Jesus embodies what it means to seek God's will. He does not seek his own glory. How do we know that Jesus doesn't seek his own glory? Because when the crowd marveled at him in, in verse 15, Jesus said, my teaching is not my own. Verse 16. He doesn't seek his own glory. And therefore, Jesus' teaching is true. Jesus' will is to do God's will. And in that commitment to his Father, the truthfulness of Jesus' word is revealed. Those who seek to do God's will must seek God through the word of Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, Jesus could wrap up the sermon and he would have done his job. He would have clearly proclaimed the truth. He could say, that's a wrap and move on. But he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't stop here. Jesus goes one step further and he shows the crowd why they do not believe him. 
He's going to show them why. He's going to convict them of why they don't believe. This is a a striking turn in the sermon from Jesus. It begins in verse 19. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. This is a really long argument from Jesus. Verse 19 all the way to verse 24. So you're going to have to hang with him. And if you think, I don't want to think that deeply on a Sunday. Well, too bad. It's what the Bible says. This is how I spent two full days this week trying to figure out how we get from verse 19 to verse 24. Jesus is going to show them why they don't believe. So here we go. To begin with, Jesus indicts the crowd for failing to do God's will. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Up until the coming of Christ... Where was the will of God revealed to the people of Israel? In the law of Moses. That's where the will of God was revealed. So to do God's will, like verse 17 says, the Jews should submit to the law. But they won't submit to the law. And as proof, Jesus points to their desire to kill him. The Jews' Jews desire to kill Jesus is proof positive that they do not seek God's will. They do not submit to God's law. The crowd, of course, is angry. That's what happens when people get cornered by the truth. So they respond to Jesus with slander. Verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Increasingly, the Jews will accuse Jesus of working for Satan. That's slanderous. But it also, it also basically proves Jesus' point. These people cannot discern God's truth. How do we know that? Because when they hear God's truth, they attribute it to demons. They can't recognize it. Jesus responds with evidence that convicts them of loving their own glory. Listen again, beginning in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Jesus is talking about the healing of the man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5, which created quite the controversy over how to understand God's law. Remember that? Healing of the man on the Sabbath? But that controversy about the Sabbath also reveals how inconsistent the religious leaders are in applying the Scriptures. Look at verses 22 and 23. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? The Mosaic law prohibited any work on the Sabbath. But at the same time, God's commandment to Abraham required that every Israelite son be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, even if the eighth day fell on a Sabbath day. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were happy to do. They recognized that obeying one command, circumcision, also upheld another command, honoring the Sabbath. In the same way, Jesus says, His healing of the man on the Sabbath was consistent with the word of God. Jesus is saying, I apply the same principle that you do. I didn't break the Sabbath by healing the man. I honored the Sabbath. So, based on their own example, 
the religious leaders should see that Jesus upholds the law. Based on their own standard, they should recognize that Jesus is doing the same thing that they're doing. But they don't see it. They judge Jesus to be a lawbreaker. So here's the question that Jesus has been building up to all the way from verse 19. Why can't they recognize God's will in Jesus? Why do they have this double standard? Because, back to verse 17, they do not seek God's will but their own. Because, back to verse 18, they teach on their own authority, seeking their own glory. That's why they reject Jesus. Because they are more committed to self-exaltation than they are to the truth. The Jewish religious leaders would rather They would rather maintain their own reputation. They would rather maintain their own reputation than submit to this untrained, uneducated, traveling teacher from Galilee. So Jesus has made this long, detailed case in order to make a simple point. Their love for self keeps them from the faith. Indeed, that's why Jesus ends Where he does. Notice verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. By appearances, Jesus does not deserve a second hearing. He's untrained, he's from Galilee, he challenges the leadership, he doesn't seem intent on building much of a following, let alone overthrowing the Romans, using the world's criteria. Jesus appears unimpressive. And that's precisely the problem. The religious leaders need to look beyond appearances. They don't need right appearances. They need right judgment. They're more concerned about appearing faithful to the Bible than they are with actually being faithful to the Bible. They're more committed to upholding their own authority than they are submitting to the will of God in Christ Jesus. They need to follow verse 17. They need to seek God's will, not their own, by submitting to the teaching of Jesus, not their own teaching. Friends, next Sunday, we're going to pick up, Lord willing, and see how the crowds respond to this indictment from Jesus. But for today, for today we ought to note how devastating pride, pride is to genuine faith. We ought to note how devastating pride is to genuine faith. That's really what Jesus is getting at through this whole passage, this whole passage, all these verses. The religious leaders are too committed to self-exaltation. Their pride, their pride corrupts the soil of their hearts so that when the seed of God's word hits the soil of their heart, there's no opportunity for it to grow. Pride, self-exaltation is the enemy of genuine faith. And so the challenge for us, the challenge for us is that we ought to be as vigilant against pride as we are against any other sin. 
Anytime we feel the pull to exalt ourselves. And you know what I'm talking about. Anytime we feel the pull to puff ourselves up. Anytime we feel the pull to shade the truth in a way that makes us look better, that helps us maintain our standing, that props up our reputation. Friends, anytime we feel that pull, we ought to wake up. Faith is not growing in that moment. The quiet temptation to exalt self, that quiet Whisper temptation of pride is like a ravenous lion that eats faith for breakfast. It devours genuine faith. The religious leaders have the Son of God standing in front of them in the flesh, teaching the Word of God in the temple of God on the Sabbath during the festival, and they can't see it. They can't see it. Why can't they see it? Is it because they're murderous, idolaters? No, it's because they're proud. They love themselves. They're committed to their own little kingdoms. And so they don't believe. We ought to be as vigilant against pride as we are against any other sin. We ought to learn from Jesus in verses 17 and 18 that doing God's will begins with a desire for God's glory to be seen, not our own. Doing God's will starts with an absolute commitment to advancing God's truth, not our agenda, not our ministry, not our persona. Jesus himself is our example. He did not seek his own glory, but rather the glory of his Father. And that's how we have to live, friends. For in seeking the glory of God, genuine faith, genuine faith takes root and it flourishes. A commitment to self-exaltation is often an enemy to genuine faith. And so may we beware of pride. John 7 is a challenge, isn't it? It is. It's challenging to be confronted with persistent unbelief. It's challenging to think about the ways in which our own hearts tend towards that unbelief. But at the same time, John 7 is mercy from God to us. It's mercy. Through Jesus' teaching, we're reminded more and more what it means to genuinely believe in Christ and to do so with perseverance. And so our prayer as we go out is that God would give us grace to be vigilant against these enemies of genuine faith. And in that vigilance, may we find that faith flourishes in our hearts to the praise of God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are quick to confess that we are far, far more like Jesus' brothers and the crowds and the religious leaders than we care to acknowledge. God, please protect us. Please protect us, Father, from these enemies of faith. Please grant us the humility that seeks to trust you and submit ourselves to you. Please grant us, Father... Please grant us open ears every single day to hear the word of God and not sit in judgment over it, but sit in submission under it so that we might live. And oh, Father, please root out in our hearts 
all of the ways that we crave for what the world offers. Please, Father, root out of our hearts that craving for worldly power and glory and shape us to be people who bear Jesus' character, who live for Jesus' kingdom, who promote Jesus' authority as a means to life. Thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the clarity and the mercy of your word. Give us grace to hear it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.